0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: To another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I'm joined by John Cohen from Toro Real Estate Partners. Welcome to the show, John. I appreciate your time today.
2: Oh no, I appreciate it. Uh, You know, thank you for having me on. Uh, Hopefully, I can get some good value and uh, some good conversation for uh, all the listeners.
1: Absolutely. For uh, folks who don't know, John is a completely a heavy hitter. Uh, He is as dynamic as you can get their group currently controls uh, close to 300 million dollars worth of real estate, just about 4000 doors. And the amazing cool thing is that they have gone full cycle on several deals, meaning they have bought, they have done their business plan and also sold those properties for lucrative uh, gains as well. So we will kind of dig into their story uh their group operates a lot of properties into C-class, which is, you know, perhaps maybe 60s, 70s built properties. So there are interesting nuances when you start dealing with those properties. So we will kind of uh, talk about some of those aspects as well. So to help us get started, John, as far as, you know, how you got started and how you kind of came into multifamily. Yeah. So
2: uh, I started actually in, in the finance world. So I had no real estate background. I was, you know, I graduated college and I, I played baseball in college. I was not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a good student. You could say that's the nice way to put it. Um, and when I graduated from school, it was, you know, get a job or, or, you know, figure it out. Right. So I got a job and, you know, it was a regular, you know, stockbroker, uh, which I parlayed that up to, you know, actually getting a job at Morgan Stanley in the financial advisor program. And, I, I went through a nine month interview process at Morgan Stanley after working for you know, two and a half, three years. Um, I got hired after nine months of interviews and back and forth and meeting with this person and that person. And, and I got hired and my first day at work at Morgan Stanley was when Facebook IPO'd. I walked into the office and quit the exact same day. Oh. <laughs> so it was, I called my mom on the drive home and I said, uh, she said, what are you doing? You should be at work. I said, I quit. And she was like, what are you doing? Like, why would you go through all that headache and everything you've done and, and why? And I basically said, I hate it. I don't want to do it anymore. And, mm-hmm. uh, I just didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't enjoy what I was doing on a daily basis. And I mm-hmm. just saw so when Facebook IPO'd, uh, it didn't do well. And Morgan Stanley was one, you know, they, they brought it to market. They brought it public. So I just saw people's face like, Oh, like, what are we going to do?
1: Right. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Now, prior to that, while, while I was doing that, I had been buying some properties here, buying some properties there and, and mm-hmm. messing around with some real estate stuff. But, uh, I had a passion for that and I was reading a ton of books and I was a lot of podcasts, a lot of, uh, or not podcasts that time, a lot of webinars and sure. just watching a ton of stuff. And I said, you know what? I can get into this. Like I'm good at raising money. I had a decent book. Mm-hmm. Why don't I just parlay that into real estate and go find some real estate deals? And mm-hmm. That was the vision, and at that point in time, you know, all this crowdfunding and syndication—it was being done, but you couldn't just generally solicit. There was a lot of rules against it, and sure. blue sky laws and security filings. So, right out of the box, my dreams were like shattered. It's like, all right, well, you can't do that. You got to figure out a different way. So, mm-hmm. I ended up uh, ended up just getting my real estate license and doing rentals and sales in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I sold some property, I rented some property then I turned that into, you know, I wanted to be a commercial broker. Uh, I, when I remember the interview, I I interviewed with all the big shops and I, the first interview I went on, happened to be on my uncle's friend. And he said, you know, why do you want to do commercial real estate? And my answer was, I want to sell big buildings and make a lot of money. I mean, why else do you want to do this? I, you know, Uh I've already sold the apartments and I've rented the apartments, but And he said, you got to do a little bit more research. I don't think you really know what you're talking about yet. So I went home and I was like, oh, wow, you can do industrial and office leasing and multifamily sales. And there was so many different product classes. So after all the interviews and educating myself a little bit more, I ended up doing multifamily investment sales for Marcus and Millichap.
1: And Mm -hmm. that's
2: when I fell in love with multifamily, just going through the Marcus and Millichap training program hearing what people were doing in the office, interviewing my clients when I would go show buildings or when I would go meet an owner. And just, I fell in love with a guy that bought a property and and 20 years later, it was worth significantly more money or or whatever it is. So I said, okay, I I need to do this. And then that's when I basically, you know, started edging my kid and myself on the multifamily side. And uh, really in 2013, I basically 2014 is when I quit Marcus and Millichap full-time. And I basically said, I'm gonna make this my business. And I went a hundred percent into uh that's when the real focus on the multifamily stuff came together. And that was when, you know, that was the start of it all. It was in 2014 after working at Marcus and Millichap, basically saying, let's, you know, let's make this a full-time business and not something part-time, which it was from 2009 to 2014. It was just buy a property here, you know go to a tax auction. It wasn't a business yet. And then in 2014, after going through Marcus and Millichap's training program, I said, this is what I want to do.
1: Mm-hmm. And as you started then in multifamily uh, there, John, uh, were you all savvy about, uh, you know, sort of all the lingo, you mean all the other stuff as far as, Hey, which markets to buy and all that was that all that professional enough or that kind of developed afterward?
2: That developed after um, they gave you a really good foundation Mm -hmm. But then the drivers, the lingo, yes, I knew that, right? You know, what a category was, NOI, rent roll, all that stuff you get. Um, But understanding markets and sub markets, they teach you at a very, very, very high level. Mm -hmm. And then you pick it up as you go, right? You you start touring deals and it's like anything else. And you learn it as you go Mm -hmm. and you really become an expert over time.
1: Sure, sure. Now, as you start, you know, sort of, um, you know, purchasing the assets and things like that, you go in a submarket and stuff, right? Uh, you, let's assume you are new and you enter, like, let's say a new market, you're kind of driving down the road and you're coming up to the asset uh, and things like that, right? How do you evaluate all of that data? Like, what, what takes you or how do you understand that submarket? Like, could you maybe kind of give your philosophy around? on the road uh, understanding or understanding all that movement that goes on and then transforming into okay this asset makes sense
2: yeah so i think uh you know we have a we have a like a quick 30 second that we anytime we're looking at a new market uh you know the technology today is phenomenal right you can go on google maps and go to the google street view and you could basically walk an entire neighborhood before you even leave your house sure and how you look at a market i mean there's a locations b locations c locations and d locations and there's mm-hmm. a property b property c property and d property sure. the easiest way to do it without you know judging anything is just looking at everything around right when you're looking at a property and you're driving down the block you know go on zillow go on redfin and look up the values of the houses right if the mm-hmm. houses are a million dollar houses you're probably not in a D location. And if the yeah. houses are $30,000 houses, you may or may not be in a rougher location, um, yeah. but then it, it, it extrapolates, right? So you have that immediate so when you're driving down, what do you see, right? Everybody has a feeling inside and nobody, you know, I don't think people weigh it as heavily as maybe it should be, but when you're driving down a neighborhood, you know, is this an area where you would, you wouldn't mind going for a jog on a, on a Sunday afternoon, or sure. is this an area where you're always looking over your back? Mm. And, that goes to the retail right what's sure. the retail in the location when you're driving up and down the block do you see starbucks and do you see whole foods and do you see you know major major retails that spend millions and probably billions of dollars on demographic studies mm-hmm. what's there is it starbucks and whole foods or is it a check cashing place and you know uh, a liquor store right like sure. that is all the stuff that you put into your 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 analysis and you say okay I was driving down this block and you know, there's a Starbucks, there's a Whole Foods, there's a brand new Chase and all this retail there. And I went on Zillow and I saw 200, 300, $400,000 houses. And that's how you give it a rating. And that rating is subjective, right? There's, there's criterias that an A rating is X and a D rating is Y, but Mm. you got to put your own spin on it, right? It's what you feel comfortable with going to bed at night. And that's how we look for opportunities. We basically say, okay, what type of locations are this good, bad, or indifferent? And then we try and find the opportunities in that submarket where maybe the rents are low or where the property's really beat up. And mm-hmm. that's how we identify opportunities. And then after all of that's done, the two biggest things that you have to check, you got to check the school district and you got to check the crime report. And you want to know what type of crime going on and you mm-hmm. want to know as a school district, good, bad, or indifferent. And mm-hmm. those are all the, that's how we overview a market and make a decision. And that stuff, you know, that can be done in 15, 20 minutes, By walking up and down the Google street, you know, looking at Zillow, checking out school reports and stuff like that. And that's what I recommend anyone do, you know, before you even underwrite a deal, get comfortable with understanding what an A, B, C, and D location are. Because you're going to be able to whittle through deals faster when you see, okay, this is in a D area, I don't want to buy it. And though is isn't an A area, that's not for me because there's no upside. So understanding markets is, is the biggest thing and you can whittle down areas that you want to invest in and you don't want to invest in very quickly.
1: Incredible. Thank you for that detail. Uh, now, John, speaking of the school district that you said, do you think that's a major factor uh, uh, in your opinion uh, when you're looking at stuff? Uh, uh, how's, how's your experience like? So th-
2: that's a, a great question, right? I know the single family world school district dictates everything, right? That, that's sure. super important. Uh, the multifamily space is weird. It's different. Mm -hmm. Um, the the most recent property we bought is in a great school district. And Mm -hmm. after we closed on that deal, we basically said school district significantly more important than it was in the past. We buy historically, we've always bought very rough, super heavy lifting deals. Sure. More Mm -hmm. often than not, they're not in the greatest. They're more C class property than a class property. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not saying that a C class area can't have a good school district, but it depends. I always tell people it depends. Your school district depends on what you're buying. If you're buying a building with all one bedrooms, your school district probably is not as important than if you're buying a property that's got mostly twos and three bedrooms, because twos sure. and three bedrooms will yield a family, sure. and most likely a family will go to school. So you want that. You, know, you want to understand it. Is it a make or break for us? No, because there's a lot that goes into the, the evaluation of the deal prior to we get to school district. But mm-hmm. after the last deal we bought. You know, we're we're tweak our acquisition acquisition criteria every six to twelve months, mm-hmm. and we've moved school districts significantly higher up because one, with all the Corona stuff and the market and where it's at, you probably want a little bit better located properties, at least we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you get a good school district and you're families that live in your apartment want a place to send their kid and they can't afford the housing in the area. Mm -hmm. Well, your apartment complex will probably do really well. So if I was recommending anyone, you know, it's gotta be personal preference, but I I would wait school district probably higher most people talk about, but at Mm -hmm. the same time, understanding what you're looking to get, you know, what what are you looking to get out of the investment?
1: Sure, sure. Now let's talk about some asset types here and, you know, sort of how that methodology plays into purchasing them, you know? So we are talking, let's say, uh, asset class C, B, and B plus and things like that, right? So for example, now some of the great markets and sub markets that we buy, right? I mean, the prices are definitely going up. There's just so much cap rate compression around, right? And- What are your experiences? I know that your group has purchased a lot of C-class properties, right? So, and as we all uh, were discussing earlier, uh, John, that there's just so much of housing and asset stock that's in that C space, like the 60s, 70s, and things like that, right? So what are some of your sort of experiences perhaps, or you may want to call it consideration that when you're purchasing them, are you shying away from that? Hey, perhaps this is a C-class deal. It probably has, you know, sort of bad electric plumbing and things like that that we want to check out and stuff like that. So, what is your thought process there? Are you kind of very conservative about it, or you will say that, hey, you know what, let's not worry about C class, let's stick to maybe B B plus, uh, you know, whatever eighty, I mean, two thousand plus built and things like that. And let's do lesser work in that B plus uh, asset space. You know, could you maybe share some of your commentary yeah, around? All no, hundred
2: um, percent. When we first started, uh, you know, first you know, the, uh, my experience was always in the rougher, heavier lift and stuff. Sure. Uh, and you learn a lot. You know that you're electrical, you're plumbing, your foundation, your we are brothers
1: in that regard. By the there way. there, you go
2: exactly. <laughs> and uh, you learn a lot, right? You buy a building, and next sure. thing you know, you have a plumbing problem. Uh, maybe you didn't pick it up on due diligence or maybe you didn't think it was as bad as it was. So today I don't shy away from those deals, but anytime we look at those deals, you know, the first five questions or six questions I ask a broker, a seller, or anyone that brings me a deal, you know, what's the condition of the roof, what type of plumbing, what type of electrical, foundation, and uh major deferred items what's been done? Do we have a schedule on it? Do we know uh, HVACs are in that major deferred? Like what are the HVACs? You know, what are the condition? Are they all dead or they need to be replaced? Then the other question, I, you know, the other motivating factor, is, you know, why are you or why is this person selling? What's the motivation behind the sale? Because mm-hmm. 1960s and 1970s pro- properties are now coming on, you know, almost 60 years old. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, 60, you know, 50, 60 years old, Materials have changed, right? You know, cast iron plumbing, polybutylene plumbing, um, j- things are different. You know, aluminum wiring, copper wiring, uh, solar sure. connections—all yep. Yep. those things add up. And if you've never operated a 1960s deal, and you go in and you think that your below-the-line reserves are going to be 250 or 300, like a bank may say you're going to get caught, you know, you're going to get caught with your pants down. So sure. we, we don't mind that stuff. And we happen to do that stuff very well, because mostly every deal we've owned has been 1960 to 1980, really nothing sure. really after 1980s. Sure. But sure. that's the stuff that we look for in due diligence. So if we mm-hmm. like a deal, and we go through it, you know, we scope every line, we walk every roof, we, we take off the outlets and see what type of wiring it is. And if you're gonna go after those deals and you don't have a good understanding of what your capex is gonna be,
1: sure,
2: you're gonna be you're gonna be caught. And there's upside with C-class deals for sure, sure. But you have to understand, like putting in new wiring is not going to make your rent go up. That's just gonna sure. cause you from having a problem. If you have old wiring, your insurance is gonna be more expensive. Sure. So you got to fix that. If you put a new roof on the building, you may or may not get a rent increase. And when I say may or may not you can't put a new roof on a building and charge 10 an extra hundred dollars. You could sure. put a new roof on a building and rent the unit that had water damage, but those are not dollar items where you could say, I'm going to put grand in it and I'm going to get $25. Right, There's right. no return. Then you could say, I'm going to put all new roofs on this and I'm going to raise the rents 50 bucks. It doesn't work that way in sure. that space. So understanding what that stuff's going to cost is extremely important because you can go buy a 1990s, a 2000, a 2010 bill deal You can go to bed at night. You're probably not gonna have many problems, right? You're gonna have your, you know, there's problems on everything, but those deals have less headaches. And you could, you know, you understand that if it was built 10 years ago, I'm gonna have to do roofs in a couple of years. But the 1970s stuff, you know, it's shingles on top of shingles on top of shingles, or it's flat roofs. So (laughs) you just want to understand that stuff. You know, I don't recommend people not buy or buy 1970s stuff but you got to understand, you know, if you're in Charleston, South Carolina and you have a 1960s built deal, there's a lot of trees in South Carolina and there's a lot of roots in South Carolina. So your pipes are probably, you know, they could be pretty messed up. But mm-hmm. you just want to understand the pitfalls of the older buildings and then you want to make sure bottom line anytime you're buying an older vintage property that that's going to need some love, uh, the thing that we mostly focus on when we buy that stuff is you got to have a really good basis and you got to buy that deal right because over time real estate heals all wounds, right? 10 years from now, it's going to probably be worth more most likely. But if you don't buy that deal, right, you're Mm -hmm. never going to come out on top. You'll just run in place. If not, maybe potentially lose money. So anytime you're buying older vintage stuff, you want to understand the heavy lifting, but simultaneously, you got to make sure that you're buying that at a price that you're comfortable with in your basis. And that's the, the key to buying older assets, uh, in areas, you know, where, you know, older assets are, you know, that's what they are. You just wanna understand you're buying it at a price you feel good with.
1: Sure, sure. And I wanna follow that up, uh, John, there also by saying that, obviously now we are coming up in like markets where, you know, obviously the the sub-markets or the states that we talk about, right? they're always, you know, sort of hard because everybody's seeing that yes, jobs are going, population is increasing, there's good good amount of organic rent growth and things like that, right? So as people are seeing this, obviously you're seeing assets that are selling for higher and higher prices, right? So all that transforms into that, okay, what's the risk for buying a C-class deal and doing a lot more heavy lift versus doing perhaps you know sort of a b-class deal and not doing that much of a heavy lift right so sometimes you know like let's say if you're doing a c-class deal and you see that yes the rent premiums are there but there's just so much work and some unknowns to be de- dealt with in that space could you maybe ta- talk about some of your mindset around all of this and uh, you know sort of how you do that value add as well to get the rent premiums
2: yeah no 100 percent. so the biggest thing that we when we look at deals especially the heavy lifting deals uh, the two things we look at is the market rent, where the average rent in the building is. And then mm-hmm. we also look at the rents in the building. So mm-hmm. if you have, let's just use argument's sake, let's say the market rent is 800. Mm-hmm. Your average rent is 650. And you know, you have a couple people in your building paying 700. So you know that, okay, I can get everybody. If they're paying and living in this building, I could probably get them to 700 and the market rent is 800. Um, if you're doing a heavy lift deal, you got you can't just look at your comps and yourself. You have to look at the nicer, newer product because if you're going to raise your rents to 800, if their rents are 900, will someone live in your apartment or will they live in the newer apartment for more money? So we look for a really good spread between class B and A property compared to where we are as a class C property. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing is that you can't just go into a class C property, put granite and stainless steel and think you're going to get $800 because sure. you may, but it's the infrastructure behind the walls. It's all those deferred items that you want to add up. That's the stuff you have to quantify because if you buy a deal and you make it really pretty and you get high rents, but all your HVACs are shot, you're going to spend three, $4,000 fixing your HVACs. And that's sure. going to crush your cash flow and crush your operations. So- when we're doing a big heavy lift value add, you know, the, the, the deferred items are the things that you really want to understand and then quantify that. Then you say, okay, I'm going to spend $5,000 a unit fixing the problems. Well, now what do I have to spend to get a rent increase? And that's the number that you have to calculate to get mm-hmm. the return that you want. And then you have to add that to your purchase price because your purchase price is key. And if you're buying that deal too expensive, y- you may not get the rent that you need to sustain the business plan. Cause if you pay too much sure. for it, your, your property as a C-class property is going to have a ceiling on rent. You're not going to be able to get the rents to just keep going because you have sure. an a and B B-class property. So when you're buying a C-class deal, that's what you definitely want to understand is, is not only the cost for the major heavy lift, but it's also the costs for the unit upgrades. And then simultaneously on the B-class deal, you have to understand hey, what am I doing here, right? What's the opportunity? And you have to realize that they're totally different deals. You can't assume that you're going to get the same return on a B and an A class deal that you would get on a well-executed C class deal. So I just tell people all the time, you know, the biggest key when you're buying the heavier lifting deals is that you really have to understand where you think you're going to take your rents. And if you don't have enough of a lift to take it from 600 to 800, it's probably something that I would shy away from because you really need a good rent increase for it to make sense if your cap X is not good, if your you know, your, your major five items are not in good shape. And that's the biggest thing to understand is that, you know, I, I got to be able to get the lift on rent. That makes sense. Me putting the money in, that's going to yield me a return.
1: Sure. Sure. And, and, and thank you for that clarification, John. And, and then there, there are some, some of those nuances also where, you know, we talk about, let's say, if the building itself doesn't have like a high ceiling that typically we see nowadays, like a nine foot ceilings and things like that. So, you know, you, kind of tend to attract a different class of a, a renter as well w- w- would you agree there
2: you know 100% i mean those are things you know we i joke around about it when we look at a deal and, and you know they're comparing the comps to 9 foot class a comps and like yeah well <laughs> i can never be that because i can't yeah. just lift my my ceilings up a foot like that's just not possible so w- when you are comparing your property you have to make sure you're comparing it to what your tenants are going to compare it to don't compare mm. it to This property, it might be across the street, but if it's a really nice deal, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you can ever be that. You really have to keep an eye on that stuff. And vice versa. Just because the broker or the owner says you could put granite and stainless steel in doesn't mean that you should be putting granite and stainless steel appliances in. It may make sense to keep your black or put white appliances in because you'll have enough of a delta and a margin where you're still going to attract the right tenants. So understanding who your tenants are and where your tenants work and what your tenants want. That's the key to success in a value-add property because if you try and attract someone that's never going to live there, your, your business plan is probably not going to work. And that's where I think people run into some problems on value-add is when they when they try and reinvent the wheel and, and they don't just, you know, they don't understand what they're trying to invent. They just try and, you know, everybody wants a clean, sexy, class A elevator, palm trees when you drive in. Everybody wants those deals. but but you can't make a property that if it, if it just physically can't be that. So you have to understand that. And that's how we look at things.
1: Sure. Thank you. Uh, And also John, speaking of that, give us some examples about, you know, sort of the value add you guys did and sort of that business plan going in and you did the renovations and things like that, because I always like to, you know, kind of understand uh, for the sake of our viewers is that, how difficult sometimes it is to do a $50 rent bump or $100 rent bump and the amount of capex or perhaps uh, some of the renovations that one has to do. Could you maybe talk about some of that uh, or perhaps a couple of examples where you may yeah. have been successful?
2: 100%, 100%, So, you know, everyone says you can raise rents 150, 200 bucks, right? Every single deal you can raise rents. <laughs> and the, the truth of it is that you may be able to, you may not. Um, we We look to raise rents, but we also look at what is a renovation to get that rent bump. I mean, we, we, we talk about it all the time. You know, we have a couple of deals where we budgeted like a tier two and a tier one renovation. You know, one is a nicer, we were going to get $150 premium and one was not as nice. We were going to get a $75 premium, but halfway through the business plan, you realize that I don't have to spend my tier two money because I'm getting a hundred dollars on my tier one. So then you, you, you adjust a little bit but you know the things that we do that are you know seem to be you know automatic value adds if you can add washer and dryers it you know that always works it seems to be almost unanimously 25 to 50 bucks for mm-hmm. adding a washer dryer but you sure. have to make sure the cost to put a washer and dryer in is what you want it to be our rule of thumb is we typically like to get anywhere between a 25 and 30% ROI on our investment. So for Mm -hmm. argument's sake, we're not putting washer and dryers in if it's going to cost us 10 grand and we're going to get a $50 bump. It just doesn't work for us. So when we look at our renovations we put into a unit and the the money we get out of the unit, Mm -hmm. we're typically looking for on the low end 20% and really good if it's 25 to 30. So if we're going to get a $100 rent bump, that's a $1,200 increase over the year. We don't mind spending $4,000 on that unit. And -hmm. then we're going to we're going to look at our comps, understand what our comps are doing and say, okay, we're going to do flooring and appliances, or we're going to do countertops and, you know, all new lighting package. But for the most part, we're backing into it based on what we think we can raise rents. And then we're looking at the scope. You know, we bring our contractors out and we bring our managers out. How much is it for flooring? How much is it for appliances and new cabinets and, and countertops? We get the the full package and then we look and we say, okay what do these residents really want? They want flooring and they want appliances and we'll back into what we believe to be the best bang for our buck to get the premium that we want to achieve. We don't just go in with a blanket 10,000 a door because you may, you may spend too much money and you may not be able to achieve that premium. So you always want to, you want to get the cost for everything and then you want to see what, you know, what, what residents want. And you got to be a local expert and you got to use your experts. And you got to say, okay, what do the tenants want here, right? Oh, they all want, you know, they love carpet. Okay. Well then keep the carpet, right? Mm-hmm. If they say they all want laminate flooring or, or vinyl L, you know, LVP flooring, well, you know, you got to do the stuff that your residents are going to want. So you can get the lift in rent that justify the spend in a C-class deal. And an A and B-class deal, you could go in and put Nest thermostats and you could spend the 10, 15 a door because you're, sure. you're dealing with a different renter in sure. a c-class property your renter you you know they're price conscious so you, you put granted and that's great but if you can't get a 200 hundred dollar lift it may or may not make sense so you really got to understand you got to get you got to get your, your 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 complete pricing for everything mm-hmm. and then you got to pick the ones that are going to benefit you the most to get the highest premium
1: sure sure thank you thank you for all that detail john i appreciate it now uh talking about on a similar topic let's talk about sort of you know you're looking at the deal you are looking at some of the comps perhaps seeing some reports and things like that right so you have some of that baseline data, right? But uh, but then as you walk the deal or as you're looking uh, closely into this deal, are you taking sort of feedback from property managers about you know what that demographic is looking like? Are you taking budgets from those property managers rather than just your thought process? So g- g- give us some idea about what that whole exact process looks like. Like a deal comes to you, you're looking at it, you're taking perhaps your budget then you're convinced that, yes, it's it's a good good purchase. Could you maybe talk about some yeah. of that?
2: 100%. So um, I always tell people all the time, you need a really good management team. If you go into a deal thinking you're going to get a $200 rent increase and and you're spending $2,000 a door, whatever it is, mm-hmm. if your manager says you got to spend $4,000 a door to get a $100 rent increase, you got to be on the same page. And you definitely need to underwrite a lot of deals in a market and you definitely have to tour a lot of deals in the market and you want to, you want to see management reports on their other properties, right? Because if you think you're going to run a deal at 3,500 a door and they're running all their deals at 4,500 a door for argument's sake, sure. your deal's not going to run at 3,500 a door if they're managing it. So mm-hmm. you absolutely, without a doubt need to look at the deal with your manager Use their reports, use the manager's reports, use their two cents, their local experts. So, you definitely need to go about the deal. You want to be on the same page. And I tell people all the time now, you know, we own 800 units in Jacksonville. If mm-hmm. I get a deal in Jacksonville, I know exactly what my expenses are going to be because I have enough scale in that market where mm-hmm. I don't necessarily need my manager's budget. Now, we always, always go through our budgets with our managers during due diligence, before we buy the deal. And we make sure they're rock solid. But if you if you've bought 10, 20, 30 deals, you know how a property is going to operate. Sure. If you're looking at the expenses on a property, you know which ones you should be able to save and which ones you may not be able to save. Mm-hmm. So I tell people all the time, you've got to be on the same page because if you are not on the same page with your management team, it's going to be combative from day one and you're going to run into problems. But all the, all the reports out there um, are good and you should use them before you buy a deal, make sure you know you're getting the proof, what are the water bills, what are the GNA, what are these expenses going to be so that I can understand them and make sure we're, we're looking at this the right way.
1: Sure. Thank you. Thank you for that detail, John. Now as you start to you know look at these deals and things like that, are there any quick underwriting steps like what, uh, or, or perhaps the other way to ask that uh, John would be is that a deal comes to you, right? what are the first quick steps you take to kind of understand that, okay, does it make sense or is it too pricey for whatever reason and things like that? Could you maybe share your process?
2: So we have a, we have a 60 second analysis that we do really quickly, you know, deal gets sent to us, um, go to the NOI and you know, you want to basically see what it is. So you go to, you, you take your average rent multiply it by how many units divide it by two It'll give you an NOI and you throw a market cap rate on it. Let's just say 10 cap for easy math, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a million dollars in gross rent, $500,000 in expenses, $500,000 NOI at a 10 cap, it's worth $5 million. Mm -hmm. That's the high level, right? Call the broker, Mm -hmm. call the owner. What are you looking for? Are we want nine? That probably doesn't work. We're probably not going to get there. Sure. If you do that really quickly and then they say they want six and a half, well, okay, you know what? We're close. Let's, let's start digging into this thing to see sure. where it shakes out. Um, that's the back of the envelope. Then now you got to factor in your other income. You got to factor in your vacancy. You got to factor in your reserves. Your below the line capital. Um, and then you start digging into it. Um, the other numbers that we use, you know, high level, uh, we look at the expenses, not including taxes and insurance, mm-hmm. because taxes and insurance, most likely taxes will go up. And your insurance will probably go up if it's been a long-term owner. So you just want to make sure that your expenses are in line, high level with them. Typically, we're seeing operating expenses anywhere between 45 and 55%. That normally comes out to on a C-class deal that we own, you know, in and around the, you know, the $3,500 to $5,500 a door. So those are the high level numbers. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if someone just takes $5,500 a door, it may or may not work. So you really, I, I would recommend the first one. Take your gross rent, take your expenses, and then divide by a cap rate on the NOI, and that'll get you pretty close. See how far away you are from what they're asking prices.
1: Sure, sure, thank you. Uh, Now, as you are doing the deals, uh, John, like what are some of the challenges that you face on a day-to-day basis as as far and wide of a portfolio that you have now?
2: I would say the biggest challenge is right now for us, um, buying deals that we wanna buy. Um, I still Mm -hmm. think a good deal is a good deal, no doubt. Um, but the market, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, right? We're, we're an uncharted territory. You know, there's 40 million people out of work. Um, who knows what's going to happen with stimuluses or no stimuluses or government aid. So that is really making it hard for us to underwrite because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no rent growth in 2020. There's no rent growth in 2021. You really got to start looking at 2022 and 2023. But if any of us knew what was going to happen in 2022, 2023, we probably wouldn't be talking to each other, right? We would be so much, you know, in a totally different space. That's probably the biggest objection and and hurdle for us now. The other thing that we're tweaking on a day-in and day-in basis is just operationally. What can we do differently? Is there technology we can use to better do asset management? Um, Is there things that we can integrate in our own company to make us more efficient? But Mm -hmm. those are things that we work on day-in and day-out. We have a weekly meeting every week, uh, we talk about operations and, you know, okay, what could we do different? How could we have done different? We also do a review of old deals. Okay. You know, this deal we bought in 2016, we sold it in mm-hmm. 2018. What could we have done differently? And if we know, okay, you know, we could have done this, we could have added washer and dryers, we could have done a pool, whatever it is. We look at old situations. Mm-hmm. They may have been super successful on paper, but we look at that to say, if this comes up again, what would we have done differently and how we mm-hmm. can execute? And that helps us get comfortable with, okay, we could pay for it at this price. It would have made sense here. So we're just trying to, you know, we're always trying to get better and educate ourselves on what's going on in the markets. And the biggest challenge right now is just, uh, like I said, it's, it's, getting the right deal flow, and then simultaneously, just always tweaking your internal processes to make sure you're really doing everything you can to be the best you can be.
1: Sure, sure. Now talking about that deal flow, right? Uh, Are you uh, like very proactive in maintaining relations with brokers and things like that to give you the deal? Or are you doing any off market uh, sort of uh, deal marketing and things like that? What does that sort of equation look like?
2: So I will be the first one to say we've really sucked at it over the last six months because we just haven't been doing as good a job, but uh, we have a, we have a system that we use that we try and touch base with our brokers once a month. We are, you know, we used to cold call 350, 400 calls a week to property owners. We used to send a ton of direct mail. Um, We still do not nearly as much as we should. And it's something that every quarter we evaluate Mm saying, you know, should have sent out more, but Mm -hmm. I recommend it, you know, if you're talking to brokers, stay on their radar. It's the gre— it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. So you gotta just—you gotta be in front of them. You gotta underwrite deals, and w- we're doing it. But I, I, the deal flow—the reason why we haven't done as good a job in 2020, it, you know, it, it, this is—these are statistics, right? The deal velocity of the market—it's down 70%. So sure, there's, sure. there's way less transactions taking place. Absolutely there's still a lot of money chasing deals. So, you know, a broker sends us a deal. They may send it to us because we're going to close. But if the seller wants a ridiculous number, we're probably not going to be competitive on that. But you just, you just want to stay out in front of them and, and do things different. You know, after you call a broker, send them a $20 Starbucks card. Hey, thanks for the time. You know, remember his birthday, you know, send them something every six months. You know, there's little things that you can do to stay on top of their radar without just, hey, give me a deal, give me a deal, give me a deal. That's good. But at the same time, you know, a broker is most likely not going to just give you a deal, right? He's going to put it through market. He's going to send it to four, five, six, 10, 20 people. You got to be different and you got to, you got to have a very specific criteria because then when the broker finds that deal, Mm -hmm. you'll be at the top of his radar. But yeah, we are not doing as good a job. Um, We are integrating things every day to be better at it, but uh, Mm -hmm. we definitely could be doing a better job.
1: Sure. No. Uh, folks at your level who have, you know, a certain scale of portfolio, uh, John, the, the trend that typically I see is that they'll start from a uh, hardworking C class place and try to get into that B, B plus, uh, uh, you know, sort of space and, which means, you know, lesser risk, lesser headaches, and, you know, like more uh, stable returns and things like that. Is that, kind of your progression path you would say is that the, your mindset as well or perhaps you say that hey it doesn't matter we will look at every deal on a on its own merit and we would not shy away from even purchasing the c-class assets as well What do you, what is sort of your thought process there
2: that's a great question so the transition and the the, the normal progression is yes and and we've done it ourselves i mean we've we are not buying deals today and this is partially because of the market and this is before COVID-19. Sure, this is sure. prior to that. You know, we made a conscious decision to not buy in tertiary areas. Not that mm-hmm. we didn't execute deals well there, but there's a level of getting on a connecting flight, right? We want to be in areas where there's a direct flight. We want to be in areas where there's a million people or more. Mm-hmm. Now, if we found a vacant deal in a market that we're invested in or that we really like, we would jump all over it and we would gladly do the heavy lifting C class stuff. Simultaneously. Um, I had this conversation today with my partner. He said, you know, well, you know, are we buying a deal for the rest of this year? And I said, yeah, I'd love to buy a deal, but it ain't, it, it's, it's not going to be a 30 IRR. We're talking about 12, 13, maybe, you know, sure. and seven or 10 years. So there's something to be said about getting a really steady, high single digit cash flow, no headaches, good loan, going forward. And there's something to be said about, you know, getting dirty, getting your hands dirty, buying some heavy lifting stuff. And we love the heavy lifting stuff. If someone brought me a deal that's super heavy lifting, I would jump all over it. I love those deals, Mm -hmm. but it's gotta be worth the risk. And in today's market with the unknowns of the unemployment rate, with the unknowns of jobs and with the unknowns of where people are moving, where people aren't moving, we're probably more inclined to scale back pushing for that stuff If it comes across our desk, we're going to do a due diligence on it, but we're not going to go seek out those deals unless we're getting them at a ridiculous price discount. Um, More often than not, you know, we're going to hang in there and we're still doing the heavy lifting deals, but right now we're probably going to, you know, probably going to steer towards maybe a C plus B deal or maybe a B minus B plus deal just Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's less, I believe there's less risk in that space today. Whereas the Seacliff stuff, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but um, we, we still will do them, but we're just going to be a little bit more cautious going into them.
1: Sure, sure. Now, as far as deal structuring, John, wh- what is sort of your uh, favorite method or typical uh, sort of a deal structuring? Uh, do you like pref returns or yep. uh, how, how, how's, how's that math play into your deals?
2: Yeah, so that is our, our normal deal structure. I would say nine out of 10 deals. Are, it's an 8% pref. 70 30 to 14, and a 60 40 split over 14, with uh, an acquisition fee up front, and then an asset management fee for the deal. Now, with the uncertainty that's out there and going a little bit more longer term on deals, you know, we have thrown out the idea to our investors of no pref anymore because if we have to own a deal for 10 years. Now we also co-invest in all our deals. So we we invest 20 to 30%, if not 50% of the equity, our equity be treated as LP. It wouldn't be treated as the GP, but we are tossing the idea out to our investors. Hey, we're probably not going to flip this deal in 24 to 60 months. It's probably going to be a seven or 10 year hold. Let's work a structure that makes more sense that incentivizes us to hold it for cash flow and not just, Execute a business plan and get out because we don't know what the future is gonna hold. But sure. uh all of our deals prior to 2020 really were under that eight pref 70, 30, you know, 60, 40 split, give or take, right? You sure. you fluctuate up and down a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh that's typically what we did. You know, we started doing press really early on. Um I don't not recommend them, just you know, make sure you understand your business plan because there's nothing worse than working for free. Uh, and your investors don't want you to work for free either, because sure. you're not going to treat their investment the same. So those are the those are the conversations we have with our investors. Is saying, hey, you know, we're in it for the long term. You want us to be in it for the long term.
1: Sure, sure, and it makes sense. And as you rightfully indicated, I think the state of the market that's there right now. I think, I, I mean, we see a similar trend where the prefs are starting to sort of get lower and lower. And in some cases, as you rightfully said, that hey, maybe let's just work out a flat. Eighty twenty 20 uh, split or something like along those lines and, you know, see if, if that makes more sense, right? percent. hundred percent. Now, speaking of, you know, let's say investors and capital raising and things like that, right? Um, how, how, was, how has been your experience? Meaning you started with some and obviously you have so many deals now. What are some of your lessons learned uh, perhaps or, you know, maybe you can talk about, uh, kind of share what are some of your best strategies to kind of, uh, you know, find newer investors and things like that?
2: Yeah. So the best thing, you know, the, the three pieces of advice that I tell people all the time, if you're looking to raise money, offer an opportunity, don't ask for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to raise money, you need really good contacts and you got to have good relationships. So you got to always be meeting new people, always staying in their mind, sending them a newsletter, giving them an update, let them know what you're doing and why you're an expert And then the third thing, which is probably the most important thing ever, uh, when you're taking investor dollars, make sure you know who the investor is and if the investment is suitable for them. The last thing you want to do is take $100,000 from a guy that only has $100,000. Because Mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, he's going to need his money back. And those are uncomfortable situations that nobody wants to be in. So you just want to make sure that uh, you're, you're taking an amount of money that someone realizes this is a long-term investment. So really, really, really understand your investors. When I first started, like anyone, you got a big borrow and steal, right? You're asking everybody, give me 5,000, give me 10, give me, give me a thousand bucks, right? You're doing everything you can to get the deal done. But if I could look back and tell myself something about that, I would have probably said, don't, you know, get get the right investment from the right person, as opposed to just, you know, taking on 45 investors at a thousand bucks, right? You're going to, you're going to regret that, you know, six months into the deal when they're calling you every week saying, hey, you know, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? So that's the, you know, that's the million dollar question. You just want to make sure you, you're, you're, you understand who your investors are.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it, uh, uh, John. Now speaking about a few things about property management and things like that, uh, typically what is your process? Do you, after you acquire the deal, are you typically changing the property management or you're looking to keep them in place or maybe keeping like key players and things like that? What does that process look like for you?
2: Yeah. So we we use our own management, uh, not, not in-house. We use third party, Mm -hmm. but uh, we typically don't retain, Management. We may retain employees from the prior managers. Um, we mm-hmm. just took over a property that we bought not, not too long ago. We kept the the on-site, the property manager. She's phenomenal. She's probably our best manager yet in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, we 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 don't always change the staff. We interview them, we understand who they are and we, we see if they fit with our, with our vision going forward. But, mm-hmm. uh, we bring, you know, we have two management companies that we really work with the two big ones that manage most of our pro- properties, one up in the Midwest, one down in the Southeast. Uh, and we look to scale with them uh, and their team. So it's the same management company, the, the on sites the maintenance guys, they may change, they may stay, they may go, but uh, we're, we're bringing in our own, our own team and how we do things, our own, our own uh, management software, all that stuff.
1: I see. I see. Good. Awesome. Thank you. A uh, couple of last questions uh, there, John. Now, as you have networked and you have transitioned in your career, what is some of your great advice that you kind of uh, have gotten or you remember on an everyday basis that kind of keeps you in discipline uh, you know, as you conduct your activities daily?
2: I'll uh, I'll give two. Um, one is can't be scared. You gotta you gotta you gotta do it right. It, you know it's easy to sit back and underwrite deals on your computer and never do anything, and then look back and say shit I should have done something. Um, you, you you can't be afraid to get knocked down. I mean there's a level of fear and there's a level of risk and there's a sure. level of trust you're gonna have to give to somebody else. But uh, you're gonna get knocked down and you're 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 gonna you are you are you you got to get back up. But you can't be scared to get started. That's the one biggest thing. Um, the second thing I tell people all the time is that, uh, a good real estate investor is not somebody that never loses money or a good real estate investor has a really good database and network where if a property gets a little bit off track, no property goes A to Z directly up. Right. Sure. A good investor is someone that when a property gets a little off track, they can get it back on track quicker. Those are the deals that succeed the best. So you got to have a really good network. You got to get out there. You got to put yourself out there. You got, you can't be afraid. You got to, you got to get out, get on podcasts, listen to podcasts, get out at networking events. I know with Corona it's a little tough now, but um, you can't be scared. You got to, you got to give it a shot um, and you got to be out there. That's the best thing that you could possibly do.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Incredible advice, John. Thank you for your time and your expertise and sharing all your experience. Uh, Share with our listeners how they can find you and learn more about your company. company.
2: um, Best way to find me. uh, My email address is john, J O H N at Toro T O R O R E P.com. You send me an email there. You know, I'm typically pretty responsive. Get back to you within 24, 48 hours. Uh, You can also follow me on Instagram uh, at John underscore JC or Reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, I'm not the best at social media, but I'm I'm trying to get better because it's a necessary evil. But uh, those are those are the three best places to reach out to me. I recommend anyone if you have a question, you know, want another set of eyes. You know, real estate is a is a business about networks, so don't be scared. Reach out, pick up the phone. Um, if, within 24 hours, if you give me enough time, I will make sure I give everybody you know, 20, 30 minutes to, to, to hear out a concept, an idea or a thought if anyone has any questions, but uh, email, Facebook or Instagram, you know, best places to reach me.
1: Awesome. Incredible. Thank you for coming on for viewers and listeners. uh, They can log on to premiumcashflow.com and see the news articles. And of course the uh, podcast as well, where experts like john are always present sharing their advice and all the different uh, incredible experiences that they have had so they And if you're interested into any passive investments, uh, kindly register yourself and reach out. Uh, We can have a short phone conversation and understand that uh, what you're looking to do and if there's any alignment and we could help each other. So uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you to all our viewers and listeners. And thank you, John. I greatly appreciate and uh, I'm positive that we will be talking on another future episode with a lot more, uh, you know, sharing your experiences and uh, tidbits of the things. Thank, Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. No,
2: I appreciate it. And we're definitely going to have to get you on our podcast too, um, for sure. But, uh, no, it was a pleasure. I hope all the listeners and viewers get uh, get some good value.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to premium cashflow, real estate investing podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.